0: Hello and welcome to the McClifford podcast with the Irish Examiner. As we know, the war in Ukraine is dominating everything, but there are some issues that persist at home, which continue to have a major impact on the people involved. The problems associated with homes built during the Celtic Tiger years have really come to the fore in recent times. Most people will be aware by now of the MICA scandal that's affecting houses down the western seaboard and the row that there has been over a compensation scheme, even though that appears to be sorted, I think. Now, to some extent, certainly anyway. But there are other defects which are impacting, unfortunately, on a multiple of those whose homes have been stricken by MICA. Fire safety defects are understood to be present in up to possibly 100,000 homes built during the Celtic Tiger years. Many, if not most, of those homes are dangerous. And as a result, a feature of some apartment blocks recently has been the presence 24-7 of fire marshals who are there to ensure that people get out safely in the event of a fire. Now, just think about, alone, the psychological impact of that, that these um, marshals are just basically men and women they are in high-vis vests who are on hand, that in the event of a fire... The fear is such that the fire will spread so fast because of defects that these people have to be alert and aware to basically make sure that everybody gets out should a fire occur. Thankfully, there hasn't been any fires to that extent yet. There have been fires, but none that have resulted in anything major in terms of um, fatalities apart from there was one a number of years ago, we'll deal with that elsewhere, but in the current phase of things, we've been lucky in that regard so far. Now, these homes were built at a time when regulations were, to a large extent, I suppose it's fair to say, shambolic. Builders were allowed to effectively self-certify and in the atmosphere that prevailed, corners were cut, shoddy and dangerous work was hidden behind walls and standards basically plummeted. The outcome of all of that has been a working group set up by Housing Minister Dara O'Brien to find out how to deal with these legacy issues that have impacted on so many. That report is due out now before the summer. But what has it been like for owners who found their dreams of building a home completely shattered? Today we talked to Claire Ryan, who bought her apartment and eventually had to leave it because of the fear of what might happen in the event of a fire. And the fire did occur not too long after she left. We're also joined by Pat Montague, who's a public affairs consultant, who's working with the Construction Defects Alliance, a group of homeowners who came together as a result of the defects discovered in their homes and everything that flowed from that. Claire and Pat, you're both very welcome to the podcast. And if I could start with you, Claire, where and when did you buy your home?
1: So I got the keys in June 2006. I was after being travelling in 2005. I came home around September and decided I'd had my fun, now was the time to settle down and I bought an apartment in Mullingar during the boom, so it was quite expensive. Two hundred thousand euro for a two-bed apartment. I signed up to a 40-year mortgage, (laughs) unknown to myself at the time how crazy that was, but now now I do, but I signed up to a 40-year mortgage, bought the apartment, moved in, it's beautiful, the apartments look fantastic. Everything went really well. I did it up as I wanted. My first home, I was really excited. And I suppose it wasn't long after that when I realised that there may be problems.
0: Right. And as you say, Claire, and that is a feature of fire safety defects that um, when there isn't shoddy work or anything there, basically the fact that the places have not been constructed properly can well be hidden from the human eye. And really... Only become apparent when it's too late in the event that there actually is a fire. But in your case, I think, was it about a year afterwards you attended the management company AGM?
1: Yes, that's right. I'd moved in in the June. I probably mightn't have gone to the first one. I'd, I can't remember if I was actually in the building or moved in at that stage. But I went to the following one with some of my new neighbours and it was our first time to be at an AGM. And really, we went because the estate wasn't quite finished and we wanted to know when the roads were going to be done and, you know, all the nice landscape. And that's all we were worried about as new owners. And when we went to the meeting, there was a number of owners there who had just also bought in the same year. So everybody moved in really in in 2006 and uh, the developer was there. He was the director of the management company at the time and he had a managing agent running the meeting and there was a number of people there. And we, we got into the normal run of the business in the AGM and then these issues started being mentioned and these two men that were in the room started getting quite irate and annoyed and raising all these issues about fire safety and how they had been involved with the council and with the developer. And there was a bit of a standoff with the developer and the rest of us were in the room thinking, God, we only came to talk about the grass cutting. We didn't know about any of this kind of thing. And, you know, we did, I won't lie. I, I've come very um, close, I suppose, close to the guys who were involved in all this at the time since then, since we realised how big the issues were. We've all worked closely together, but at the time, and they know us and we joke about it, that we thought these guys were a bit crazy that were in the room and they were shouting and getting very annoyed. But little did I know what they had been through for the previous few months. Um, So we, we left the meeting and, you know, we didn't think a whole lot of it for another while, but... After that, then we decided to form just a normal residence association. And again, that was just to get the day to day jobs done because there was no one there to contact the developer to get the roads finished and all that kind of thing. And the management agent at the time weren't great. So we just formed a normal residence association. And that was in 2007. And I thought I was only joining it for a few months. And here we are in 2022. And I am still involved to try and get these issues resolved.
0: Yeah, and as you say, Claire, I suppose, again, you had noticed that you mentioned two individuals. One of those, I know, because I know him personally myself, because I've done some work in this area, and that was Noel Manning, who was a a fire safety engineer who did work with a lot of people around the country. Unfortunately, Noel is no longer with us. He died a couple of years ago. But he's an unorthodox kind of individual, but highly effective in rooting out what was wrong and and bringing to the attention of people like yourself what you needed to know.
1: Absolutely. And I guess at this point, unfortunately, he has been proven right. And I only wish he had been wrong. And I wish I just didn't know about them, to be honest. But as time went on and the issues came out, I mean, I had the odd conversation with Noel, but we were trying to work mainly with the developer and with the council at the time, but we just weren't getting anywhere. And uh, Noel was very vocal about it. And, you know, he and I had a few confrontations about it as well. But um, overall, we were both in agreement that there were issues there and, and trying to find the best way forward to try and get them fixed. And the kind of
0: issues we're talking about are, I think, fire stopping, which basically for people who mightn't be familiar with the technical terms, is basically uh, material that's put in there to ensure that, for example, should there be a fire in one unit or one apartment, you should have 60 minutes before it spreads to the adjoining apartment. And without that, you're really in trouble because the fire can spread so quickly that it catches people unawares. That was one of the big issues. And there were others as well, Claire, weren't there?
1: Yeah, so that was the main one. So we've no fire stopping between the apartments vertically or horizontally. So the fire will go up and out and it'll be in a matter of seconds. Um, I believe we've literally, if we had eight, I think eight minutes is what I've been quoted up to now, we would have to get out of the apartment. Um, And then the other main issue is that we have a common stairwell in our apartment blocks. And the gas, instead of being piped from the outside into the buildings directly into your apartment, it's being piped through the stairwell up through the middle of the stairs and it's not encased, and that seems to be the biggest issue from an engineer point of view. It's just a normal copper pipe running through the middle of the stairs, so the upper floors have to try and get down those stairs if there is a fire, and they won't because it'll obviously blow up because there's no encasing in the in the in the in the, the piping. So from a fire perspective, there are the two main issues that we have. Now we do have a number of construction issues as well. On top of that, it's not just fire regulation that was breached.
0: And your your development, the oaks in Mullingar, it was um, timber frame construction. And whereas there are some perfect timber frame constructions around the country, uh, I think it's also fair to say that one feature of timber frame construction is that there's a lot of prefabricated work in it. And as a result of that, the precision that's required when you're putting all of these prefabricated units into place, you have to a very high degree of precision in order to ensure that the proper fire stopping is there, the fire retarding features of it, and that just wasn't there in this instance, as with a lot of others as well. I should also point out that we know what has happened in a similar situation, again, a timber frame construction, and that was a place called Millfield Manor in Newbridge County, Kildare, in 2015, thankfully, we're talking about the middle of the afternoon and that it wasn't the middle of the night, but a fire in one house of a terrace of six started and theoretically it should have taken three hours for that fire to spread, yet the whole terrace was raised practically to the ground within 30 minutes. So that's the kind of thing, clear that um you were looking at in terms of possibly, no, it shouldn't be, there's nothing definite about it. But once the fire stopping isn't there, you're looking at something of that
1: order. Well, we know some of our attics look through to the other attics. So, like, there's gaps, there's triangles at the top that weren't filled in. So, I mean, people can nearly crawl through them into somebody else's attic. So, obviously, a fire can get through just as easy or easier, you know. So, I mean, there's very little protection there at all. And as you mentioned, I'd moved in for a few years I had intended to buy the property just for maybe, I don't know, five or six years. I was only 26 at the time. And then I'd go on to buy my first house, family home or whatever. But that never happened because we can't sell the apartment. So I could never sell it to move on. Pat,
0: if I could bring you in there, you've come across a lot of this now in various different developments. But the fire stopping is a huge issue, isn't it? It's it's fairly ubiquitous.
2: I mean, it's the most common defects issue in our apartment, stock across the country. Just interested in listening to Claire speaking there, and she talked about, for example, the lack of casing around the copper pipes carrying the gas. I was actually talking to somebody uh, living in a, a, a Dublin development who had exactly, who has exactly the same issue. Now they've actually got a program of works just about to start, but exactly that. So, so, so what the sort of issues you're talking about uh, is, and, and, and you referred to it, Mick, is that the, the concept of the golden hour, which is the hour that provides time for people to evacuate in an orderly fashion, but also provides an hour for the fire services to get to the seat of the fire and put it out. Uh, and actually, fire. Is in a sense the least of the concerns. The most insidious problem, due to the lack of fire stopping, is the spread of smoke. And smoke spreads much more quickly than fire. So it was interesting you were talking about, uh, Claire, the spread—you know—spread in of fire in eight minutes. Unfortunately, the smoke would get there well ahead of it, and that's the thing that kills way more people in these types of incidents so so the purpose of it is and and you talked about it again going in it goes in um, at ceiling level floor level it goes around what they call service pipes so that you're supposed to have what are called collars on the end of them both at the top and the bottom and between floors so to stop it coming up uh you're supposed to have it around your front door uh you're supposed to have it uh, then in the party walls between you and your neighbour, and you're also supposed to have it in the external walls. And then in the common areas around fire doors. Unfortunately, most fire doors are not fireproof. Um, that's the experience. And indeed, there again, most uh, evacuations, so fire stairwells, again, are not fireproofed. So that the means that people are supposed to use for evacuation that are supposed to be safe, unfortunately, aren't. So it's a whole dog's dinner of a problem. And Mick, as you rightly said, we're looking at certainly somewhere around 100,000 potentially plus apartments that are not properly fire safe.
0: Yeah, and I suppose in that context, Pat, just to point out about the times that were in it, there was... God, I tell you one thing we could do with the level of building now that there was going on in, in those years. One feature of it was that apartments really came to the fore in this country during those years after 2000. We started building apartments at a huge level to, to, to respond to a need that was there. And the other feature to this is that in two thousand and eleven, Priory Hall—people will know the name. It was the big issue in North Dublin. There, the the, the big issue, of Priory Hall, and uh, at the time, the developer was a man named Tom Murphyley, who who was a, a farmer. IRA hunger striker who subsequently went bankrupt. And there was this thing sort of projected at the time, the guy was a rogue builder and this was the exception rather than the rule. Now, it has to be stated, some developers during those years kept the highest standards. But it's also, I think, unquestionably now the case that there was a certain systemic element to this type of shoddy work. There
2: there was. So I suppose... Some of the biggest names, and, and don't worry for obvious legal reasons, I won't be naming them, uh, but some of the biggest and most well-known developers uh, have developments that are affected by defects. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, I, I think that the... the, the so, so it isn't just sort of small builders and rogues, it's right across the spectrum. Um, some, and a tiny minority... Have actually taken their responsibility seriously and have actually tried to rectify it, but they are very much the exceptions that prove the rule. And 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 the part of the problem, and this is goes back like decades, is that uh, the way our construction sector works. So I'll come back to the workmanship in a minute, but there's a structural issue around the way that construction. Uh, the developers operate. So what they do is they set up a separate company for each development they undertake. Uh, and what happens is then they that company holds very few assets. The assets are held by an overarching holding company that is separate from the other company. So it means that if there's a problem with that development, The person that you can sue or the the company you can sue holds little or no assets. So even if you are successful in suing them, there is no money to pay out. And it's deliberately structured that way. And it's interesting that as far back as 1977, the Law Reform Commission recommended that that practice be done away with for that very reason. Interesting is the same issue goes on in the UK as well. And uh, the UK Secretary of State for Housing and Leveling Up, uh, Michael Gove, has actively been talking about ending that practice of using sort of serial special purpose development companies. So that's one of the issues. The other issue, that's in terms of getting stuff back afterwards. But coming back to the practice at the time, the issue was that the construction sector, you're right, 170,000 apartments were built during that era between 1991 and uh, 2013. So the era of not quite the whole of the Celtic Tiger because some of that was in the austerity years, but it was during the lifetime of the first building regulations. And 170,000 built during that time. Our estimation is certainly that the, that the at least 70%, if not more, are affected by defects. So that's why we come up with a figure of around 100,000 and potentially a lot more than that. We know ourselves in the construction defects of a alliance of about thirty thousand units affected by defects so far. Uh, but but why did it happen? It happened for two reasons. One, I think the sector I think one was a cultural reason, because Irish construction, and I hate to say it, but particularly home construction, has always had a reputation, unfortunately justified, of cutting corners of getting away with whatever you could get away with. Now, if you're just building houses, and particularly semi-Ds, unlike terraces you talked about in Millfield Manor, then to some extent, if there were sort of semi-Ds or detached, semi-detached or detached, you sort of limit maybe the scope of potentially the spread of fire. But obviously, terraced houses and apartments it's much different because you're people living literally cheek by jowl, and so that you can't get away with substandard building from a fire safety point of view. But the culture has always been that way: to cut corners, get away with whatever you can. And the sector was hugely overstretched in terms of personnel, so a lot of people working in the sector, frankly, didn't know what they were doing. But come the second issue, was totally ineffective oversight. Uh, by our building control authorities. And the reality is that um, the the uh, coming back to, say, the professionals, all they were required to do was to do a visual inspection and completion. And coming back to fire stopping, you won't see fire stopping once the thing is complete. Why? Because it's under the floorboards, over the ceiling, inside the walls. So you can only monitor that during construction, but there was no requirement for that under the first set of building regulations. Uh, But even so, sometimes a lot of the inspections, not just by professionals, but in fact, even by local authorities, was cursory. A lot of them, what they did was they conducted what were called drive-by inspections, where they set themselves a nominal target of looking at 15% of new builds and literally what they would do is to bring themselves up to 15%. They would literally just drive by in their cars and say, yeah, we looked at that, to bring the numbers up. So, you know, so no surprise, the builders knew that there was little or no oversight. So there was no, there was no threat uh, to sort there was no big stick to encourage them to actually build effectively. So, kel surprise, we got what we got out of it because the culture is endemic and there was no counterweight to
0: that endemic culture through effective regulation and oversight. Absolutely, and two things that arise there in terms of what you're saying, Pat. One, the numbers that are involved, unlike, for example, the, the unfortunate people who've been hit with mica, it's there in front of them and their houses are crumbling down. In this instance, you will have a lot of people for understandable reasons who, even if there's a hint or even if they discover that there are some defects behind the wall that would be really catastrophic in the event of a fire, they prefer... Not to deal with it because quite often they might be transient owners. They might be hoping to pass it on and get the thing out of the way, and it's not their problem. And I, I think there's a huge amount of that out there. The other thing is is, is the um, the regime you're talking about. And I have to. I'd recommend to anybody a book written by Ono Brin, the Sinn Fein housing spokesperson. Defects, it's called a really uh, readable um, account of how. In this country that the uh, the whole regime of regulation was really handled terribly right the back the way over the last forty years or so.
1: To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at IrishExaminer.com forward slash subscribe.
2: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
0: We've touched on the regulation, but I think what's really interesting as well, another interesting aspect of your story, is what happened when the council accepted that there were defects, Westmead County Council, and they started at that stage to bring proceedings against the developers called Castle Pride Developments, and they threatened to bring them to court.
1: Yeah, I think this is probably one of my most frustrating things is the whole enforcement notice process and what happened with our apartments. Because the first enforcement notice was actually put on our one of our blocks in uh, February 2006.
0: Sorry, Claire, I just, just to explain to people, excuse me a minute, enforcement notice, that's basically the council, they contact the developer and say, legally, you must you must do this remedial work, you must fix this. And in the event that you don't, you can be taken to court and criminally prosecuted.
1: Yeah, so I suppose one of the differences with our, our apartment complex is that the apartment did do an inspection. They did identify that there were defects. And because of that, they put an enforcement notice on the developer to say you must fix these before you continue on with the rest of the development. And I believe there's a like a 30-day window there they have to sort things out. So had they done that in February and followed through with that in February, I wouldn't have had an issue when I bought at the end of June because they would have inspected the other blocks as well. They would have who may not have been as complete as the one they were looking at, because we bought we kind of moved in later on. Then they would have seen they would have been able to see that the work hadn't been done because they were probably still open and not completely finished. And that didn't happen. So that was back in two thousand six. I didn't know anything about this. I bought at the end of June. Didn't know there was enforcement notices. So that obviously didn't come up in the searches either from my solicitor when I was buying. Um, I moved in and then down the road we obviously all these issues came to light and later on in 2009 the develop, the county council because of, I suppose a lot of, of uh, complaints from ourselves as to what was happening and what was being found at this stage they did issue some more enforcement notices on the developer as well and then he didn't comply with those either and there's articles there t- um, where they went to court and the judge went to the district court here in town and the judge basically lifted his finger and said too important, out of my court, bring it higher and told them to bring it to the DPP into a higher court. And the Westmead County Council brought it back into the court again to to the same judge. And he said, did I not tell you that I'm not hearing this in this court? And the council basically said it would take six weeks to prepare a file to bring it higher. And they hadn't the time or the resources to do it. They just couldn't be bothered. And that's the attitude we have had for the last 14, 15 years Right up to last summer, where we were still trying to get in touch with new director of services, because they keep changing in the council, trying to engage, trying to get their support, trying to explain to them what our situation is. And they don't even respond. They won't meet with us. I've tried explaining everything, you know, how we're trying to work with them. This isn't about blame. It's about getting us to a point where our apartments are insured, where they're safe, where they're compliant, where we can sell them and where everyone can live peacefully. Because at the moment, it's a complete headache.
0: Yeah, and I think that's very important, that incident that happened at the court. And we're talking about 2010. The council bring the developer to the district court. The judge, and I think he, from the court report at the time, he asked whether people were living in it and he was told they were. And on that basis, he felt the situation was so dangerous and that the offence or the the alleged offence so serious that would have to be dealt with... The circuit court, and just to point out to people, the district court has, um I think it, now it may be two years, it has a maximum um, jurisdiction of two years imprisonment and a fine, it used to be 30,000, maybe more now. But quite obviously that judge felt, this is potentially so serious that, you know, that wouldn't be the enough in the event of a guilty verdict. He puts it up to the circuit court. In the meantime, the DPP has a different opinion and the council rather than taking the time to prepare a file and being ready to do it, decide we'll let the thing go, strike it out. So you have a scenario whereby a judge thought this thing was so serious, yet at the end of the day, the council struck it out. And I've looked into this, Clare, and I think since then, and that's 12 years ago, the council has, they certainly haven't used the law to attempt to ensure that the standards in your development is brought up to what they should be?
1: Absolutely not. I mean, we've engaged with them a lot over the years at different points in time. We met with them in 2014. Um, they were trying to mediate with the developer, but the developer wouldn't fix all the issues if the, the talks fell through. Um, we've been back again more recently. We, in 2019, we actually went up to Leinster House and met with Minister Damien English and members of the Department of Housing um, to discuss their issues and what we could do. We spent an hour there with them, There was a few people there and a couple of directors from the management company and they listened to our story. We explained all the enforcement notices, the letters like we have a letter that was issued back in 2006 that states that the um, building control inspector for Westmead County Council is advising that all issues are satisfactorily resolved. Now, the council and us both have reports since then to show that nothing was done like to resolve the issues at the time. So we've a lot of history to this situation. We brought that to the Department of Housing in 2019. We met with them in Leinster House. And from that day to this, despite five emails I'd sent to the people we met, I have never had a reply from the day we left that meeting where they were going to go away and talk to, the representatives and the Department of Westmead County Council, I have never had a reply to follow up from that meeting to see what could they do, what would they do, could they support us in any way to get these these buildings fixed? Nothing.
0: Yeah, and I have I have to say I, I, I've I've looked into this issue and I've written about it for the Irish Examiner and I requested Westmead County Council. I, I put a number of questions to them in relation to this and gave them the opportunity to to put forward their position. And after was well over a week waiting for a reply and, and seeking one. I was finally told at the very end that at this stage the council do not wish to comment on the affair at all. Pat, we've spoken about the regulation but beyond the absence of regulation state agencies it would seem to me have been unwilling to face up to the result ultimately and you'd have to suspect that a certain amount of that is down to the fact that they're half afraid that if this situation is dealt with at all, that it will cost them financially, largely because they didn't police the, the regulations in the first place. I think that's
2: uh, very fair, but, you know, it's uh, ultimately it's costing the state anyway. Uh, and we'll come back to that in a minute. I mean, I suppose I'd have some insight into this because I was involved and um, the you mentioned I'm a public affairs consultant and. Uh, The Architects Institute, the RIAI, were clients of mine for 25 years. So I was involved in working with them around the development of the current set of building regulations, otherwise known as BCAR, that came into effect in 2014. And while I was never at the meetings or whatever, but I remember it being said, and I've heard it said from others, that the department, the one sort of bottom line from the Department of Housing's perspective was to ensure that no liability would attach to the state uh, due to, say, a faulty inspection or whatever. So they did not, they certainly have never wanted, and I think Owen uh, O'Brien's book uh, sets this out as well, they have never wanted the state or any arm of the state, including local authorities, to have a role in inspecting uh, buildings Uh, And so that's why we have the system, you know, so it's a more complex, more onerous form of self-certification than was there prior to 2014. But ultimately, that's what we still have. Now, there's now a National Building Control Office, but it ultimately, again, is small staff. So we don't have a sort of um, a very developed form of monitoring that they have for instance, in the European Union. And here's a very interesting thing. So do you know how much money has been spent in the European Union by the states in the European Union on redress for apartment defects and things? Very little, I guess. Zilch. And the reason for that is because they actually have much more rigorous enforcement during the construction process, but they have other measures to ensure that builder developers actually have to fix things so that the consumer rights are much stronger and they also have what's called a, a latent defects insurance that's mandatory um, and, and so that they have measures in place. Why? Because they've had apartment living. Apartment living is the main form of urban living yeah. in continental Europe, whereas it's relatively new here. So the problems we're experiencing, they're also experiencing it in the UK, it's mainly an English speaking problem. And there's another issue that comes with that, which is a political philosophy, which is sort of neoliberalism, which is, a, which is fixated with light touch regulation. And unfortunately, the attempt by the elements in the Department of Housing to distance the state uh, from this and to insulate the state from potential liability, ultimately is gonna cost the state north of five billion euros. Why am I saying that? Well, MICA is going to cost over two billion. They've spent already one hundred and eighty million uh, uh, so far between spent and allocated for pyrite. Uh, NAMA, which is a state agency, has up to 2020 spent two hundred and fifty million on apartment defects. And frankly, sorting the apartment defects method is there is going to cost at least two billion. So we're looking, certainly in my view, it's going to ultimately the whole thing of running away and leaving developers get away with it ultimately is going to leave the taxpayer on the hook. And I think we have to learn the lesson from this and 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 rebalance rights, to, uh, ensure that developers pony up and that they're not allowed to get away with things that they've been allowed to get away from the past and that we've more effective regulation. We have to fess up uh to the mistakes we've made and just grow up and act like adults uh and the way they do in the European Union. So,
0: you know, the, the days of just running away from things, they're yeah, over. Definitely, definitely we will. we hope so. Claire, and in your story then, as you say, you couldn't sell the apartment and you actually moved out and rent it because you were you you, you didn't feel safe there, am I right?
1: That's right. And I guess really where this, what happened was back in 2018, Um, actually in 2017, I came, I had a, a baby and I came back to the apartment and it was all great. I'd lived in the apartment for 12 years before that. This was obviously in our minds. We'd been nervous about it for a long time, but I didn't realise until the, the day I was bringing my daughter home how serious it was and how much it affected me. And for the next year, I was on maternity leave and I obviously was um, not working and I was trying to help progress this as much as I could while I didn't have to work at the same time. And we agreed to go to mediation in the September with our developer and the architect and their insurance companies who had signed off on it. Um, And we went to mediation up in a solicitor's office in Dublin and a couple of the directors and we spent 12, 13 hours there that day. And it was probably one of the worst days of my life. It was horrendous the way we were treated, the way we were questioned, the way we were made to feel like it was our fault. Um, And I left there broken. I left there broken. That was at about seven o'clock in the evening after 12 hours. And I came home and I just said, I can't do this anymore. I can't stay here. I can't raise my daughter here. I didn't want to move her into her own bedroom because I was afraid that I wouldn't have the time to get her out if if there was a fire. I hated her being too far away from me because I said, if something happens, will I have the time to go and get her and get out? And I was on the ground floor. So people that were on the upper floors, I don't know how they felt. But I know I decided that this was going nowhere. Nobody was willing to support us and I can't stay here. So I ended up moving out and I'm now renting in the same state, actually, as the apartment. Um, And like it is a lovely place to live. It's one of the most respected estates in the town. It's really nice and very in demand. And it's just it's such a shame because they're beautiful apartments. They look lovely and everybody is happy day to day living in them. And there are still they're all still occupied. And time, you know, I just have to get out of there. I couldn't cope. It, it literally broke my spirit that day. And I, I hate to even think about the place. I can't get I'm considered a second time buyer now because I have bought the apartments. I can't sell the apartments. There, Some of them had sold in the past for cash uh, as cash buyers. But now solicitors won't even touch them. They won't even try to sell them for cash buyers.
0: And the, the insurance company, they, that was withdrawn close to 10 years ago.
1: April 2010, yeah. our can- insurance was cancelled. So we would no public liability on it. We've no fire insurance. We've nothing. So our banks are aware of this, but I'm still having to pay a mortgage on it.
0: After you moved out then in, in, was it early 2020, there actually was a fire?
1: So this time last year, actually, the end of February last year. So as I said, I'm living in the same estate and my neighbour, I was outside, my neighbour came home and she said, I think there's a fire down at your apartments. And I said, what? And I ran down straight away to the apartments and I looked up, and it was like the nightmare I'd been living for fourteen years was coming to life. Unfortunately, and we're very lucky that there was no deaths that day, but it was. I was stood there with one of my neighbours who is an owner as well, and we were trying to get people back away from the fire because everyone was kind of looking at all the smoke coming up from the the common area and or from one of the houses, the apartments, and I could tell. I knew what was going on and I just had to keep saying get back because if they hit the, the common areas with the gas pipes, we're all being blown to Kingdom Come. Seven fire brigades, an ambulance, guards all arrived in minutes. Sure, everybody in the town knows the problems with the apartments. Um, it was very emotional. I have to say it was like literally a nightmare coming true in front of us and the apartments started, the house started to go up on fire that was attached as part of the apartment blocks Um, And we were there for the night. We were there with the fire brigade. We were there all night and uh, it was thankfully put out. There was no injuries and there was two units affected. And from that day to this, we've never heard from Westmead County Council. The closeness of that fire still didn't prompt them to do anything, to even contact us, to even start a discussion to ask us what the situation was, because we're actually going through the process of a legal claim against the developer and the architect. We did figure out that we'd an issue before the six years um, time limit was up. So we did issue proceedings and we are progressing that. We're just waiting for high court dates to become available. But we are doing everything we can to try and get these resolved. And that fire happened and, you know, it really frightened all of us. And we still have heard nothing. They just have had you know, we've had nothing from
0: the council. Crazy. And as you say, and the developers has gone out of business since they are insurers there, but that's yeah. another feature of, of a number of them that have happened. Pat, just to finish with you, um, we have this working group set up and hopefully people like Claire and, and the, our fellow owners in Mullingar, along with thousands of others, um, will get some respite for it. Do, do you see something positive some some proper resolution coming out of this working group well let me put it this way I'm hopeful but um
2: you know nothing's guaranteed and I suppose what I would say is that that I suppose obviously I would have you know I have some insight into what's going on in the working group um and uh, but they've yet to I suppose the, the big decisions about what needs to be done and how it's going to be paid for, have yet to be grappled with. Uh, and part of the reason for that is they're waiting for, they're, there's an online questionnaire. And I suppose when all of that data comes in, it will help to shape, I suppose, the decisions because there will be much greater clarity, not so much on the how many apartments are affected because To be honest, majority of apartment owners don't know that they have issues, but they'll certainly have a much greater handle on the sort of cost spectrum that is there um, and the type of issues that are out there and the type of attempts people have made to try and resolve it. The report is expected. um, My understanding is, as I said, then this material that sort of later in March and then over April, they'll be crunching through all of this. I think the first draft of the report will, will be worked on in May and the report finalised in June. Uh, at least that's what we hope happens. So, um, you know, there's nothing guaranteed, but I think when you look at the direction of travel in terms of what's happened with MICA recently, that would give me some hope. Now, it could also be seen the other way because the MICA thing is going to cost the state a lot of money, uh, over $2 billion. But I certainly would, you know, think that it's very difficult for the state now to say, well, look, it, that they're not going to offer the same sort of remediation process to apartment owners that has been offered to um, um, the owners of mica and pyrite affected homes. So I think, you know, remains to be seen. And I think just the key to this is obviously the great work you've been doing, Mick over the years in terms of exposing this issue is really important. But it's critical that apartment owners get in touch with us in the Construction Defects Alliance and take part in our campaign because really the power does reside in our own hands, as we've seen with Micah, to make sure that we get the best possible result. So rather than just wait and be passive about the outcome, we need people to be, you know, contacting their TDs and if they get in touch with us through constructiondefectsalliance.ie, we'll provide them with the tools and the support they need to do that. So in a sense, it rests in our hands as well uh, to do something about it. Um, and so look, I'd ask everybody to do that, please, and make sure we get the best possible result.
0: Okay, and um, I have to say, this is something that we that the focus needs to be kept on because so many people out there, clear story there, obviously, and, and I personally have come across a number of, of, of people like that. And, uh, you know, your home is your castle. And then uh, and we all take out mortgages, 20, 30, 40 years, even as Claire said. And then to find that you run into these kind of issues through absolutely no fault of your own. It's something we're definitely going to, uh, to keep the focus on, hopefully. That's it for today, folks. I'd like to thank Claire and Pat for giving us the benefit of their insights I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. We'll be back soon, and until then, stay by the wall and mind yourself.